Welcome to the Wellness Pie Shop, where each episode we delve into a different slice of wellness in hopes of nourishing ourselves. With the help of special guests and a little of our own irreverent insight, we'll dive into some of the ingredients that make up the whole of Wellness Pie. We're your hosts, Dina Searden. And I'm Rachel Paez. Thanks for joining us. Now grab a cup of tea, sit back and relax, and enjoy a piece of Wellness Pie. Mimi, thank you for joining us on this podcast. It's such a surreal moment for me to have somebody I admire and respect being a guest on this podcast that both Dina and I are so passionate about. Um, So if we could, I'd love you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you. And I already know why you're so special, but go ahead and tell our listeners why you're so special and all your accomplishments. Thank you, Rachel. I appreciate Appreciate that from you. Um, so, Mimi Brodsky Cress, I am a home builder, residential home builder in Bethesda, Maryland. I build custom homes, and that has been my career for the last 40 years. That wasn't my chosen career path when I was uh, heading off to college, but uh, my dad had been a builder. My brother was a builder, so I kind of fell into becoming a builder, and I love it, and I'm passionate about it, and it's stressful and frustrating and awesome all at once. Um, So that is my day job, and I have a lot of non-career, they're not really jobs, but I'm very um, passionate and active in a lot of nonprofits in the area. related mostly around mental health and affordable housing. So that's a little about me. So I think we're just going to dive in here and kind of get to the the nitty gritty of this conversation. I know Dina and I both have some interesting questions to ask you, but the big one being, what are your values? What brought you to who you are today and the work that you do now? I would say I got my values from my parents. Um, They were in different ways. My dad was very, he was a builder. I I went off to college and my my goals were to be far from home, close to skiing. I went off to Maine, you know, good choice. And I wanted a really small liberal arts school. This was the mid seventies. And um, my dad's basic words of advice were go off, learn about life, see what interests you. And I ended up with my degree in American studies, specializing in black history and literature. And for your listeners, I am not black, uh, but that was of interest to me at the time. That, that's what I majored in college in. And then I had absolutely no clue what I was going to do. And my dad had said, go learn about life. And so I did things. I traveled, I skied a little, and then I needed to get a job. I went and worked for this other builder for a couple of years and realized that I loved being a part of making someone's dream come true by building them a home. You know, we all need shelter. Um, and I, I loved it. I loved watching something be built from the ground up. I learned hands-on by working out in the field. I love it. I love every part of building. Um, and now I think the reason that 
My values have led me to be so active with Habitat for Humanity locally and their Women Build program and some of the other local organizations rebuilding together Montgomery and the Montgomery County Coalition for the Homeless is, I don't build affordable housing. Um, I build custom homes for people that have probably way more money than they need to be spending on these homes. So I feel that it's really important by the values that my parents instilled in me to give back. So I do a lot, as I said, with Habitat. Um, and that was a big value that my parents always gave back in the community um, and, and the importance of that. And then, you know, my mom, um, fiercely independent woman. Um, that's the this, truth. To this day at 92 and three quarters, still driving. Um, Shouldn't be. Let's just add there. Grandma, you're listening. The jury's out on that. Oh, wow, that's kind of scary. <laughs> the jury's out, but she's picking up the pizza tomorrow. Um, but she's always been a very independent person, even though she wasn't a career mom. Um, always independent and always spoke her mind. And I think that it was an important thing that I learned from her about being honest and um, saying what was on your mind. And I think her generation was very different. And I know that she has, has, has been judgmental over the years. That's just who she is and maybe how she was raised. She was raised on a naval base, but also just to be outspoken. And if you had something to say to someone, don't bite your tongue and not say it and feel bad about it. And I don't think I say things in a judgmental way, but I do like to be honest with people. Um, I may bite my tongue a little too much because sometimes I like to be too nice probably. And I don't like to say no, and I don't like to upset people, but those values also led me in addition to the world of affordable housing and working with that. Um, I find that things that affect my family personally are things that I want to spend my time and give back to. So having a son who from the age of 10 struggled with mental health issues, um, severe mental health issues. Uh, it took me 10 years to get there, but I finally found the local NAMI, National Alliance for Mental Illness, and took a class, my husband and I, which was eye-opening and amazing. And um, I loved the organization from day one. And so when they asked me to be on their board of directors, I didn't know how to say no. So I said <laughs> yes. And then a few years later, when they needed a president, I said, yeah, but I'm really busy. I will do it in name only. And I'm not very good at name only. So I am five years now, I think, the board president for National Alliance of Mental Illness of Montgomery County, very active with them. And it's just important to me. I think everybody's mental health is important. And I think in this day and age, things are much more in the open. And it's important that we talk about whether it's race, whether it's our country's history, whether it's the needs of people that can't afford housing, whether it's people struggling with mental health issues and un un unpacking that and reducing stigma. Those are my real passions. There's stuff that someone once asked me, if you weren't a builder, what would you be? I said, I'd probably be running a nonprofit of some kind, <laughs> somewhere, somehow. So- if I can just summarize what I heard, it mm -hmm. was 
your values include giving back to the community, independence and speaking your mind. Because NAMI, I feel like you're giving back and you have a personal investment in that as well. Yes. And so I wonder, you're giving back to the community in that way. It was, I'm sure, not something that um, was a family value because that had not occurred Mm -hmm. before. Mm -hmm. So now you're, you're taking that on in a new way. So I wonder... The NAMI and the mental health and giving back to the community in that way was something that wasn't modeled for you when you were younger. So that was something that came to you later. Yeah. And it was really about, um, for me, if it was something that was important in the the world or my children, you know, I have two children uh, now 25 and 30, but if it was something, and I can't say it involved my son, but related to him. And my daughter was very active in her youth group when she was in high school. Um, so I, you know, got on that board and it's just, it, it, when it touched me personally, you know, Habitat's amazing. And I, every story, when I meet people and we're working in their homes because they do sweat equity or when they're speaking somewhere, or I've been lucky enough when they've had the, um, the day when they're given their keys to give them their, quilt from Habitat. And it's, it's really special hearing their stories, but they're not my stories. I wasn't a single mom or a, a family of six living in a one bedroom apartment. You know, that wasn't my experience. So it's different with NAMI because it was personal to me. And when I took the class, you know, my friends along the way and family were as understanding as they could be and as supportive as they could be, but when it's not your experience, it's different. Um, And I think mental health particularly is more different, even even more so because, you know, if you have, you know, I have a nephew who has juvenile rheumatoid arthritis and he struggles and it's difficult and he's had to go through a lot, but people can see that or relate to that. Whereas, you know, when you have the kid in fourth, fifth grade who has bipolar and is getting in trouble because he holds, tries to hold it in all day. And then he was, you know, it was even more difficult when he was home. Your friends can't relate to that. Or when we'd say we can come out, but we have to take two cars because, you know, one of us probably is going to end up having to go home early. Mm -hmm. That was our reality. And when we got to NAMI and took the family to family class, We were all very different in that class. Um, At the time, my son was 21 and had been diagnosed with schizophrenia. So Mm -hmm. like our whole world, we didn't know how this changed after 10 years of the other roller coaster ride. What was the future going to hold? So these people could relate in ways that my friends and family couldn't because they were going through some version of their own loved one struggling with a mental health challenge. And I always use the experiment that we did there. It was so profound to me that we were given a card and we were randomly matched up and someone stood behind, someone read the card and the card had just a bunch of sentences. And you sat there and you read the card while the person behind you was just yelling things and talking at you and saying things. And and you're trying to concentrate and read the card and you have these voices behind you. 
And that's when it was like that aha moment, like, oh, that's what my son has when he, you know, when he's struggling because all this noise is, is in his head. And it was like a real aha moment for me. Um, so the NAMI thing, it was a support group that, I, that we as a family needed, the whole family. Um, my daughter was in college at the time, I think, or maybe a senior in high school, and she was affected, you know, by what she grew up with. And my husband um, said it really beautifully once. He said that taking this class made him a better father because it gave him so much understanding of how parenting was so different for us and what we had to deal with, and also kind of getting a better understanding of what our son was struggling with, because it's hard not to just be angry or frustrated with what's going on when you don't know, is this because he struggles with mental health or is this willful, just obnoxious behavior? And sometimes, sometimes Maxie, it's both. <laughs> maybe a little bit of both. Um, but it was really so critical that it is my passion um, but I think it's so important that people start understanding about mental health and being aware and understanding what stigma is. I used to go into the high schools. NAMI had a program called Ending the Silence that actually um, was started when a bunch of high school kids in California about six or eight years ago, maybe not even that long made videos about mental health awareness. It was like a California statewide program. And NAMI took these videos and made a class that we would go in and talk to the high school students. It was usually during health class when they were studying mental health. And we would talk to them about, you know, you wouldn't bully or make fun of the kid that has cancer or the kid who might have a heart condition or juvenile rheumatoid. Like you wouldn't, make fun of them. So why would you want to make fun of someone because they're struggling with a mental health issue? And there is so much death by suicide from high school kids, even middle school kids. And people think, oh, not in my community. Oh, not in my family. Oh, not in my ethnic background, religious background, whatever it is. And it is everywhere. And mental health does not care how much money you have or don't have, what color your skin is, what religion you are, whether your ethnic background has, you know, really strong, harsh feelings about talking about mental health. And so it was really important that we talk to these kids about it and tell them, you need to find a trusted adult. Like if, if it was kids that would come up to me and say, you know, they're Hispanic and say, I can't talk to my parents about this. This is taboo. And I would say, well, do you have a gym teacher or a guidance counselor? Like you need to talk to someone, you need a trusted adult. And I would say to them, I know that's an oxymoron. I, I, and I always say, who knows what an oxymoron is? And then of course there's a few kids that know. And I'm like, yeah, I was in high school once I get it. Like trusted <laughs> adult is like not something that a high school 11th or 12th grader, like, you know, wants to even get, but it's, it's really important because it is, it is, you know, um, rampant and, you know, one in 
five teens between the age of 13 and 18 are going to have some kind of mental health struggle. Mm-hmm. That's 20%. That's a lot of teens. It is a, a lot of teens. And what's interesting to me, first off, I just have to commend you for, for the work that you're doing because it's amazing. And I've worked in the field of mental health for a long time, 25 years now. Mm-hmm. And you know, you're just so spot on and experiencing that in your family is a profound shift mm-hmm. from where you grew up. And um, I, I won't say totally because I think there, <laughs> I think there was Wait, just, was, just undiagnosed, some <laughs> hidden mental illness in a couple of life. the people. Okay. So let family. me rephrase that. Yeah. But it was much more it acknowledged. Was much, it was, much more diagnosed and upfront, but I, right. I do believe in looking in now that I know more in hindsight that, yeah, there, there yeah. was some depression. There was probably undiagnosed bipolar, um, yeah. anxiety, and a lot of other things. Lots of other things. I, I just, it was interesting to me that when you first started talking about your values, you were talking about giving back to the community and how in college that you had this major in black studies, right? And as a white woman, mm-hmm. sort of different, you know? Um, and yet even back then, while you didn't yet have a son who had mental illness, you were very connected to other individuals' stories, mm-hmm. other areas of life that you didn't personally have experience in. And it sounds like that human connectedness is a value for you. Would that be accurate? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would say that's accurate. I, I, yeah. And I think also that learning about, I think that's why I'm such, you know, not that I have a lot of spare time, but I am a voracious reader, whether it's novels or nonfiction. I like a lot of novels. I like to read about other cultures, other countries, other parts of our country that aren't what I've experienced because we are a very, you know, we're like the Crayola package. This, you know, our world is not all, you know, vanilla custard. Um, people need to recognize that their little bubble isn't the way, you know, they, I could go down the street and just because Bethesda, Maryland may be considered a fairly affluent place. There's, there's a woman I drive by every day across from the Harris Teeter near my office and she is on a bench and she does not want to go to the Montgomery County Coalition for the homeless women shelter. Dina, I know you were going to say something, but I'm just going to say something. I think it's so interesting to listen to you speak. And when you talk about that value coming from grandma of being outspoken and not holding your tongue, and then you look at the work that you do with NAMI and this completely no hiding behind stigma, no hiding behind, you know, fear of what others are going to think while right. you're breaking down these barriers and breaking down the stigma. And I, I just love hearing when we talk to our guests, when you talk to people like you, that connection of that value to the mm-hmm. work that you're doing. And then looking at how, how that not necessarily was used in your parents' voice of what, how they used that value and how they used their independence and all that, and how you've turned that value and individualized it for yourself mm-hmm. to impact people and groups of people whose voices might be 
quieter than yours. Mm-hmm. Uh, not just because you're a Brodsky, but you know, and, <laughs> and using it and adapting it to being for you. And I just love that. I love hearing how values grow. And a, a question that we ask all our guests is, you know, do you think values change or do you think you mature into them? And what when I speak to you and I listen to you, what I'm hearing is you matured into this value that you're then using to, to the way that you want to be using it. I think the values are always deep within me and it's really funny. Um, and I, I can say this and I heard both of your other podcasts, but hearing your first podcast and hearing Rachel talk about some of the values um, that were her, the family she grew up in. And, you know, I had two brothers And we were very different. And my one brother, who's, you know, six years older than me and is still alive, very different. And people are like, how, how, you all are so different. And I'm like, but there can be twins that are so different that we hear about, you know, you're so different than your siblings. So I don't think just because your parents had certain values that necessarily all the, all the children are going to adopt those and, and make them their own. So, absolutely, absolutely. you know, mm-hmm. I, I think it's, um, so I, you know, I may have matured in some ways into some things, but I think it was always in here. I think it just, you know, when I was younger, I volunteered at the nursing home and, um, you know, different things. And, and so I think for me, I think maybe because I was the youngest and the only girl, um, my dad kind of took me by the hand as he did some of these things when I was younger, probably because my brothers were off, you know, getting in trouble. I was the more compliant child, but, you know, I went with him when he did some of these things when I was younger. So I think it became more ingrained in me. And, you know, I have my daughter got her master's in social work. Uh, I think a lot of her trajectory was because of what she experienced having a brother struggle with mental health issues and then having her own struggles with anxiety and OCD. And, you know, she's working in the nonprofit world with low-income juvenile offenders. So so clearly she's gotten some values from her parents about giving back, taking care of people in the community who may not have the ability to, you know, take care of themselves in some way. And even my son, who's 30, who can be very self-centered, has a huge heart. And actually, in talking to him just last night, like I reminded him of a conversation I had with Rachel. And Rachel knows this conversation because I bring it up often. So I said to my son, we were kind of trying to help him figure out, and I was trying to get at like, what do you really want to do? What do you see yourself doing? What would make you happy? other than watching movies. And I said, you know, I had a conversation with Rachel when she was 19 years old and heading out to California. And Rachel had started college, didn't go so well. And she was just taken off to go to (laughs) California. And I won't say that her life was on the trajectory it is right now. And we had lunch, my husband and I with Rachel and I said, what do, you, what, do you, what do you want to do? And she goes, I'm going to go back to college. I'm going to get my degree. I'm going to do this, that, and the other. I said, Rachel, 
He said, you don't have to say to me, I'm going to go to college and get my four-year degree because I don't really care. And I'm not sure I believe you, but the, <laughs> what do you really want to do? What do you see yourself doing? What would make you happy? And she said to me eight years ago, I see myself doing some kind of something with horses that have you know, been a part of our life for so long and helping others, whether it's equine therapy or whatever it is. And damn, if not, you know, however many years later, this is what Rachel did. And Rachel, you know, got herself on the path of pursuing what she really wanted to in life. And I said to my son, so what would make you happy? And he said, you know, I want to help people. I've, I like to travel, but I, I want to help people. Maybe it's going and, you know, he said, I, I liked when I volunteered at the soup kitchen. So even with his selfishness and his struggles and his somewhat antisocial behavior at time, he doesn't really want to take part in things. He has that value. And I got, I have to believe that whether, you know, it came from us. Um, it's certainly, as I sit here and look at pictures of my dad, you know, my dad, when he was maybe a little older than me and retired, he took on being a, I guess it was a buddy, two different times with two different young children, taking a Saturday with a young child with autism, a young boy with autism, so the parents could have a break. He didn't have to do that at 67, 68 or whatever, however old he was. He wanted to do it and he loved doing it. And he felt like he was giving something to these kids, these two different boys. First it was Dylan and then it was Parker. Um, my dad knew that he was giving these kids an opportunity, whether it was just going to the beach and running around that they didn't really have because one had a single mom and the other boy had parents who just were struggling and they needed a break. You know, they, the parents needed a break and these young children needed to get away from their parents because it is often easier when someone else is trying to help you do something than your parents. I just, I wonder if there's ever been a time when you struggled with how to, manage your values versus what was really going on in your life? Or have you always been able to, to stay with I think it? I, you know, um, it's always been a part of me. Like I said, I started volunteering like at the nursing home down the street when I was 12 years old as a candy striper. So I guess it was a part of me, you know, when I was 14 years old, my dad had me making phone calls to raise money for something with him. So I just think it was always a part of me. Like I talk about how this generation now overall, and especially when you look around the last four years, they're very engaged in making the world a better place. I think my college years, while I, I, I think I was much more interested in the party of the moment and more focused on having a good time, but I still think those values were there. Um, there was a woman to a very, it's now a great college. I could never get in, but Colby College, very small, you know, smaller than my high school up in Waterville, Maine. And there was a woman that worked in one of the food services. And Shirley was this amazing woman who was, if you pass Shirley, you'd think, you know, she was just a, a 
salt of the earth, Maine woman. I don't even think she stood four foot 11 and had a thick, thick Maine accent. And she, when she wasn't working at the food service and she was the like a mom to anyone that wanted to, she tended to go with the wild kids. You know, we seemed to gravitate towards Shirley because Shirley had a farm and she had nine kids and we'd all go out to the farm and it, it was just a great time. But Shirley worked like my dad did. Shirley helped kids back then. We didn't you know, call it on the spectrum or whatever, but she helped kids that, I think if we looked at it now, they were kids that were probably on the autism spectrum. And she had her own struggles. Her husband, Red, who'd been a fiddle, fiddler, um, Red had a stroke when he was in his late fifties and he lived in a nursing home and Shirley was working to keep the kids from getting into all kinds of trouble. And then she kind of took on all of us kind of random kids from the college. But I watched Shirley doing this, you know, and I knew that like, I wanted to, I said to her, like, can I, can I help? Is there a program I can get involved in? So I think it's always been there for me. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think there's been a time in my life where I haven't somehow been involved in something. I just think it's not only because it was a value instilled in me. And as I said, and not to discount my mom, but I think a lot of this came from my dad. Um, his, he had a huge heart, hardworking businessman, you know, but huge heart and um, talk to everybody, whether it was the guy uh, you know, serving food in the restaurant or the person pumping gas in the car or, you know, what's your name? Where are you from? Do you, he just was friendly to everyone and, and really cared. Um, but he also knew how to have a great time. He, he loved life. He loved life. And I got that from him. He was also somebody to add to what you also got from him. And you didn't talk about this, but he was kind of against the, the normal. I mean, he was uh, vegan and a vegetarian yeah. in a time yep. when that was n- not even a thing. No. And um, he was extremely into yoga and meditation. And exactly, yep. we're talking about a man who in the time frame that he was alive and thriving, always did things that were off the beaten path and yeah. always yeah. based in in bettering his community by bettering himself. And I think that that's also something that I know a little bit about you more than our listeners do, but that's also yeah. something you do about yourself. And you're somebody that advocates self-growth and self-development in order yeah. to better your community and better your family and those around you. And I think that that's also another... Another yeah, and also for them. and also for our own mental health, mm-hmm. you know, especially during the pandemic. I, I say all the time, and if I didn't have Zoom yoga, I'd probably be really nasty sometimes, <laughs> like a lot, a lot meaner than I am because I, I need it. Like, don't mess with my space. I had a rough day today, and my husband called. And he was he's the, he's a sweetheart. He's the nicest guy. He wanted to know, what do you want to do for dinner? I said, I told you I have to get on the podcast at six. I don't care what I need for dinner. And then I texted him and I said, I'm sorry. I was such a bitch. I'm having a stressful day at work. He brought home some food. It's downstairs. And when I was talking to him, he goes, maybe you should do some yoga poses or something before you get on the podcast. And I'm like, I think I'll meditate. I'll like meditate for five minutes, you know? 
my dad was definitely ahead of the curve with that. And not just in those last years. And my dad was very religious. My dad was raised as an Orthodox Jew in Atlantic City. My grandfather was a baker, but a very religious man. Um, we were raised not Orthodox, but religion was important in our family. And, and that was, you know, there is a Jewish word, tikkun olam, which means repairing the world. People think tikkun olam mm. means being charitable. It really, the meaning of the world, word is repairing the world. And it is a Jewish obligation to do tikkun olam, to repair the world, whatever that means in, in your space. And so my dad was religious, but he also was very spiritual in terms of yoga, meditation, self-care, whether it was jumping in the ocean, you know, he loved, he loved to swim in the ocean. And he was definitely, um, I used to joke and say he was kind of like a Jewish Buddhist. A lot of our family has gravitated to your mother even um, because there is something centering about it. And I think everybody needs to find something that helps them center. I'm, I have a, I'm going to bring it Dina to kind of where we were talking about earlier today, if that's good with you. So I, again, know some insider information and um, (laughs) this podcast is coming out the day before Thanksgiving and Ah. we've talked a lot about um, your, your desire and your drive to give back to the community and to create a space where people feel safe and non-judged and all of those things. And the insider information I know is (laughs) for the last 27 plus years, you have hosted a very large Thanksgiving that has also always been an open door policy. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious to know how the shift of COVID and not being able to do that and that value that is so deep in your core kind of being shaken. What is Mm -hmm. that like for you this year? Even not just Thanksgiving, you know, everybody is struggling with any, anybody that's social. If you're a recluse, this is a great situation for you. Um, for someone like me who is very social, likes to be with people. I also have a 93 year old mom who I see. And so I go to an office, you know, I've had two people that I've worked with had COVID, um, And I'm really careful and I'm not out there being as social as a lot of my friends are, but it was a very quick and easy decision as much as many of my nephews who do love the food of Thanksgiving, but they also love, it is, it is big. It is anywhere from 35 to 45 people, depending on if all the relatives that are in California every other year come visit. Um, But it's a really happy time. It's a time to reflect on things that we have that we're all really grateful for. And it's the one time of the year that everyone knows like you're coming to Mimi's house. We're all going to be together. And that's hard. Um, Zoom's like not fun. You know, it's just not the same way to connect and everyone talking at once. And that happens in person here, but there is that moment where we stop and we, Sometimes we'll talk about what we're grateful for, but we just stop to appreciate everything that we have and all of us being together. And I'm 
sad about that. I have to admit, I'm not sad about not getting prepared and having that many people in my house. <laughs> but I am making a medium-sized turkey because my husband really loves leftovers and his mom makes turkey soup. I'm having a very small Thanksgiving and that's really sad. It will be a party of four, um, my son, my husband, and my mother and I. And it's tough. It's very tough. I miss not having everyone here. I miss that I have two new, a great nephew and a great niece that I haven't got to see live and in person. And they're my mom's great grandkids. And, you know, I don't know if she'll see them. I hope she lives a long time, but I hope she gets to hold them, but she's not going to get to see them as babies. And um, it's hard. It's hard. I think uh, I, I, I like... I like the chaos and the mayhem. I may, I bark a lot of orders from the kitchen. She runs a tight ship, real tight ship. You've got to with that many people. (laughs) I wear a pair of socks that says, get the hell out of my kitchen. We're a big family. We're a loud family. We're a loving family. And it's very sad to me that people can't be together. That makes me very sad. I'm thinking about the Thanksgiving as someone who hosts Thanksgiving dinner as well, but to (laughs) far, far fewer people. Smart decision there. Mm, Well, I also have a very tiny townhouse, so. (laughs) Well, I take all the furniture out, but we have a very large family. Mm -hmm. I think the thought that gets me through, and I'm sure that you've had this thought as well, is Thanksgiving is every year. And we are in a historic period and it's, Everything is is upside down and topsy-turvy. Your love and compassion and caring is going to carry through Zoom or a phone call or however else you choose to communicate. Um, I have no doubt that every person that normally joins you will feel you in their heart this year. I hope so. And Rachel knows it's really hard because I have not seen my daughter in eight months. She is also in California Mm. and she is struggling right now. The, um, she is very open about talking about her struggle with OCD, which this is not a good pandemic to be someone who's struggling with contamination, OCD issues. And I'm not sure when I'm going to see her. We're kind of talking about that because she did venture out. It was, you know, even going out to see her, she's like, we'd have to quarantine. We'd have to get tested. It's it's a lot. And nothing is easy. A few things. One, um, I'm not surprised that people are more inclined to go to NAMI meetings virtually. If you think about my generation and the younger generations, the one of the largest issues we have is social anxiety because we grew up in technology and we grew up with a screen buffering a lot. So I think even for me, I'm more inclined to do things virtually because I can keep my pajama pants on the bottom and I'm in my own home. I'm in my own kind of environment. And although I am the most extroverted introvert you'll ever meet, I'm still an introvert and I, and I like, I like that things are virtual. Um, So that's the one thing where I think online stuff is great. And to tie that into, you said something that is exactly what our our podcast is really about. And I think why both Dean and I were inspired to get this started now during COVID is what COVID has forced 
most of us, I'm not going to say all of us, even though I wish it was all of us, most of us to do is look at our values and reevaluate our values because for a lot of us, what they were pre-COVID have completely shifted. And I think for a lot of people, we talk about it a lot is what is your values versus what society's values are. And I think what not only COVID, but this election and what's happening in yep. the world is doing is asking the question that we're asking all of our guests, which is what are your values? What influences your values? And are you living accordingly to those values? And I think you kind of just hit it, hit the nail on the head that Thanksgiving and holidays and these once in a lifetime opportunities are what people would have taken for granted before are now coming into play being like, wow, this is more important to me than getting that extra paycheck. Or it's more important to me than making sure I lose 10 pounds this holiday. And I think that what my hope is for this podcast and what my hope is having people like you, like Dina, like other amazing guests that we have and, and other influences in my life are for people who are lost in that question and lost in their path towards living that fulfilled life is giving them conversations like this and giving them conversations where they can maybe not agree or, um, or, relate to everything, but I guarantee they're going to be able to pull apart one or two or more things that you have said that our guests have said that will help them determine the answer to that question. And, and I would just like to add to that, um, to kind of back up just a little bit. Um, Mimi, you said that, you know, you're a type A person, you've got to get out of the house you you're fortunate that you're able to do that because you'd be going completely nuts. Um, (laughs) I think there are a lot of people who are like that, who have spent their entire adult lives running from their values, running from really having to confront who they are and how maybe they're not living in alignment with their true selves. And what you said, Rachel, is they now have the time to do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And as I said last week with Julie, in a sense, one of the things that we need to do is to give ourselves the gift of a pause. Well, guess what? The universe has given us a, <laughs> the a universe. Big one. My what? husband has said that from early on that, you know, between the fires that you all had, everything else going on, he's like, the world has told us something. And you know what? We, we are not being kind. And, and people now do have the time to stop and reflect. And you're never too old for it because, you know, you talked about, Rachel, it's not just COVID, it's the election. It's the, you know, what's going on with Black Lives Matter and not just Black Lives Matter, but Black Lives um, and and racial inequality. And my mom decided to do an online Zoom class with my daughter and I that these two amazing women did on diversity, equity, and inclusion. And my mom said, you know, she grew up in Washington, D.C. And um, she said, you know, I recognize that there are things I do because of biases that I have, prejudices that I have. And I may not be able to change them at the age of 93, 
but I can reflect on them and think about them. And I think we can all do that, whether it is about, you know, the, what's important in our lives because of the pandemic, what's going on in our lives and our world because of the election and what's going on in our country, what's going on with, you know, addressing and looking at our history, you know, in this country and racial inequality and systemic racism and just moving the needle a little is a, is a great thing. If everybody's needle moved a little towards I won't call it towards the good, but towards betterment, towards reflecting and being able to look at yourself and see things that maybe you don't like or love, that even making little changes, you know, can make a huge difference in the world. While we've only had, this is only our third podcast, a theme that is uh, strung throughout has been this idea of um, helping, of being of service, and of connectedness. Mm-hmm. And I don't care what side of the political spectrum you're on, connectedness is the thread that binds us. And if we can use this time to reflect on that, yeah. the wholeness rather than the differences, um, you know, then COVID's done its job. Yeah. Right. And I'm putting that out in the universe and I'm hoping that maybe it'll make a difference in one or two people's lives because you're right, uh, Mimi, it's if if every single person just moved their needle one tiny little bit, this world could shift tremendously. And, And having conversations and talking about things is the only way it happens. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're hoping to provide that space to have some of these conversations. I think it's great. I think it's fantastic. I so appreciate your um, coming on our show and talking with us. You're an amazing woman. I oh. am just like in total awe. Well, say, <laughs> let me interrupt and say that I never expected that 19-year-old Rachel <laughs> would now be inviting me to be on her podcast to talk about values and what makes up my pie. And one of the awesome things that I'm so looking forward to as I do lean towards my little tiny Thanksgiving is that the night before now mature, amazing Rachel, uh, who does these amazing programs for so many people around equine therapy, around body image, around what she, you know, did before with young girls that were struggling with their own mental health issues and other things who is now a certified yoga instructor, that <laughs> I get to do restorative yoga the night before Thanksgiving, led by Rachel. So that's pretty awesome to me. It's I'm in pretty, awe of that. What a weird circle this has been, right? I'm in awe of that. I love it. I love it. <laughs> it's amazing. I think, should we ask her a final question? Yes. Okay, Go ahead. So, so our, final, our final question of this podcast is... This is for a million dollars. A million dollars. Oh so you God. better get it right. <laughs> no, I have to answer this so I can go get my Penny Norma downstairs. There you go. Penny and eggplant from Renata's. Um, what is the secret ingredient to having a whole, delicious, well-baked pie? So we talked about talking, but I think really to have a full 
to have full relationships with others, whether it's people you work with, people in your family, people you're involved with through the nonprofit world. And I think it's something I need to do more of, but I think it's, it's listening to one another. I think you can have a fuller life if you slow down, like we've talked, if you truly listen to each other, whether it's your relationship with your spouse or partner or children or business associates, I think we, we, we learn more and gain more by listening. That's wonderful. And I, I think that's completely great. agree. Yep. I agree. I think now that's I something some that people, cream on top. Yeah. I don't think people <laughs> think about that. People think, um, active listening is like something that like my therapist talks about all the time. Cause I struggle with it sometimes in my partnership more specifically, as I'm not a great active listener Me and either. it, part of my mile a minute issue. And I think you're right. If my relationship with him, and that's really where I'm going in this context is when I listen to him, I'm better. He's better. We're better. My Mm -hmm. house is better. Everything is better. If I can just actively listen, because I think that that's what it is. It's actively listening to whoever you're speaking to, because that's the only way you're going to really hear what they're saying. And and be able to respond in a way that is respectful of their time. Thank you, Mimi. Absolutely. I yes. love you. I, I love will... you. And Dina, I love that you're doing your thing with Rachel. And I, it's all really moving the needle. It's fantastic that you had, that we had um, Mimi on and she is so amazing. She has, just the experience, the wealth of knowledge and involvement that she's had. It, it, it's, it's, well, I'm at a loss for word. <laughs> what I learned from this one, this one um, is, I think I'm going to come out a different person every time we interview somebody. I think there's going to be a little piece of me that either I didn't look at or wasn't there or... I hid, that's going to come up. I had a great time and I'm looking forward to our next interview as well. So we'll see everybody next week. Bye.